You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com sermons. The subject for this lesson is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to ask a question. What does it really mean? Does it really make any difference if you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Or is this one of those teachings that, you know, we can tolerate differences on? Does it really make any difference? What makes a doctrine mandatory? What is it that makes a doctrine mandatory? Can you go to heaven without believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I think you take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the answer that Paul gives us is no, you can't. You can't even become a Christian without believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what makes the doctrine mandatory? Does it have to be mentioned or assumed on every page? I mean, if you take a look at baptism, we all understand that that baptism is essential. But it's not mentioned or assumed on every page of the New Testament. How about the greatness of God? That is, it's assumed or mentioned or praised or, or something on, on, in almost every verse of the New and the Old Testament. God is great. We serve, as I pointed out on uh, Thursday night, we serve an awesome God. He is not, not to be classed with those who, uh, the, the false gods of the, the Greeks or the Romans or the Hindus or, or whatever. He's awesome. He's great. That's on every page. What about the necessity of faith? I can't see God. By the way, a lot of people have a hard time with the idea of faith. Little Johnny was coming home, uh, or had gone to Bible school, and the teacher in Bible school asked Johnny, said, Johnny, what is faith? And Johnny gave the answer his dad gave. Faith is believing something you know ain't so. That is not faith. That's foolishness. Faith is anything you know without seeing it. Is there electricity going through these lights? Everybody would say, yeah, there's electricity going through these lights. Can you see the electricity? Well, I see the light. No. What you see is the result of the electricity. You can't see electricity. Well, you can see lightning. No, you see the results of the electricity that is lightning. When electricity passes through an ionized gas, it gives off light, but that's not the electricity. I know that there is electricity going through these lights, absolutely 100%, but I know by faith. Who was the 16th president? Well, it's Abraham Lincoln. Did you see him? No. History tells us that. You know it by faith then. Based on competent, reliable testimony. 
The necessity of faith doesn't mean you don't know something. It simply means you know it by reasons other than seeing it. The necessity of faith. It's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God, without faith it's impossible to please God. Excuse me. For without faith, uh, uh, it's impossible to please God. Without. Okay, Jay. It's possible. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. See, now, now Jay doesn't have to confess. Faith must be obedient. Can you have a disobedient faith or an inactive faith and expect to go to heaven? No. But that's on just about every page, isn't it? What makes a doctrine mandatory? Others are not mentioned so much, but are still recognized to us. For example, if you take a look at baptism for the remission of sins, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, Now why tarriest thou? Rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We're told we're buried with Christ through baptism in Romans chapter 6 verse it's, but it's not mentioned on every page. Is it necessary? Well, sh yeah, sure. But it doesn't have to be mentioned on every page. The church is to be supported by the Lord's Day contribution. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, And now, as I gave order unto the churches of Galatia, so also do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let each one of you lay by him in store, that there be no collections when I come. Well, that's the only place we're told how the church is to be supported. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that the Philippian brethren sent once and again unto his needs. Where did they get that money? Paul says there, he says, I know how to be about, uh, how to abound. I'm beginning and reading in verse 12. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound in everything and in all things. Have I learned the secret both to be filled and to be hungry, both to abound and to be in want. I can do all things in him that strengtheneth me. Howbeit you did well that you had fellowship with my affliction. And ye yourselves also know, ye Philippians, that in the beginning of the gospel, and when I departed from Macedonia, no church had fellowship with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my need. Where did they get that money? Well, if we're going to walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, they had to get it out of the first day of the week contribution. Paul taught them to do that. So we need to understand that some things don't have to be mentioned on every page in order to be mandatory, in order for us to understand them and consider them binding. So how about the elder's authority limited to one flock? It's only mentioned in one place. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul says, uh, take heed unto yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers. Elders have authority among the flock 
of which they are a part. That limits them. That's it. And so, you know, the elders here have no authority in El Dorado. When El Dorado had elders, they had no authority here or in any other flock, just the flock among which they were uh, made to be overseers. Is that mandatory? Well, yeah, it is. So what makes it mandatory? How about the fact that God said it? How many times does God have to say something in order for it to be true? Uh, Let me ask another question. When I was a kid, how many times did my mother have to tell me to do something before I was expected to do it? One time. If I made her repeat herself, that was not the... That was not a happy thing to do. Same way with my dad, although dad was much more forgiving than my mother was. But what about a doctrine that's seldom mentioned? Is that something that uh, is important? How many times does the Lord have to say something for it to be so? Well, he, you know, if, if my mother can say something one time and I could be expected to obey... Certainly, God doesn't have to repeat himself. So, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 says, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible. It would be a violation of his character. And God can't, won't violate his character. So if he mentions it once, That's all there is to it. If he mentions it once, there is nothing else to to work. He says it. He said it once. That's it. I don't need anything else. If God repeats himself, that's great. But once is sufficient. So, modernists, and typical modernists, reject everything miraculous. They reject it since they've been around in the 1870s. They rejected the virgin birth. They reject the resurrection of Jesus. They reject the soul in man. They, anything that has to do with the miracle. They, they deny that prophecy happens or happened. Uh, they claim that such lack of mentioning the virgin birth means it's not important or it's not even taught. Really? That's an absurd idea. But the virgin birth is mentioned in the Old Testament. For example, the premier verse, uh, the first verse that's mentioned is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. When God is handing out the, the uh, punishment in the Garden of Eden for, for the serpent, for Adam and for Eve, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is talking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, It shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Notice he talks about the seed of the woman. All through history, it's been the seed of man. The seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the seed of whatever family you were talking about. But here he talks about the seed of woman. You know, we didn't even know women had seed until the last hundred years or so. Everybody thought, the man planted the seed and it grew inside the woman, never realizing that 
She had seed too. But here we are in the very beginning of time and God mentions it. But it's hinted at here. He calls the Messiah, the anointed one, the seed of woman. Never such language anywhere else in the Old Testament. Like I said, it's always the seed of man or the seed of uh, such and such a family. But let's take a look also at Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Okay, let's turn over there and take a look at that. Read it a little bit more in context. Here in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Isaiah was sent to Ahaz, the not-so-righteous king, to give him encouragement that Judah was not going to be destroyed. In verse 3, Then Jehovah said unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shirjashim, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither let thy heart be faint because of these two tails of smoking firebrands. For the fierce anger of reason of Syria and of the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have purposed evil against thee. They were trying to take Ahaz out of the kingship, kill him and replace him with a puppet king. And Ahaz was worried about that. And Isaiah was told, go encourage him. Don't worry about these because in a few years they're going to be gone. But you'll still be around. And in verse 10, Jehovah spake again to Ahaz saying, Ask thee a sign. Notice he says, Ask a sign. Of Jehovah thy God, ask either in the depth or in the height above. He was commanded to ask a sign. But notice what his answer is. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt Jehovah. He was pretending to be righteous, but God had specifically commanded him, you ask a sign and I will show you that I am with the city and Judah. Oh, I won't tempt God. God didn't take that too kindly. And he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, that you will weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Butter and honey shall he eat when he knoweth to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings thou abhorrest shall be Gone. Now notice, the Lord told him, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Now the word, as you take a look in your Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, is the word number 59, 59, whatever. But it's the word Alma. It's a feminine of the same word, uh, uh, it means alas, as veiled or private, a damsel, a maid, or a virgin. Every place in the Old Testament where this word is used, it is always used of a woman who is a virgin. Now the word 
uh, theological word book of the Old Testament was written by, compiled by Thayer, I believe. And if I understand what he said and what he means, there's no instance where the word is used of a woman who is not a virgin, unless this be it. And there's no reason for us to assume that this is not, that this would be an exception, because it's a sign. It's designed to be supernatural. It's designed to be something remarkable, something that's never before been seen. The Septuagint translates this word into the Greek word parthenos. And when you think of this word parthenos, think of the temple in Athens, Greece, the Acropolis. It's the temple of Diana, and it was surrounded by statues of virgins in this temple. The word parthenogenesis, if you take a frog egg that's unfertilized and you prick it with a pen, it'll develop into a frog. You know why they call it parthenogenesis? Because no male seed was involved. And nothing was, it happens. So, Isaiah 7, 14 is talking about a prophecy of the virgin birth. The New Testament explains these passages. For example, take a look at the account of Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, in Jewish society, a betrothal was more than an engagement, but less than a marriage. So she was bound to him. She was bound to him as though she was married. But the only way to break off the engagement was by committing adultery. You couldn't do that. So she was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. It was, a, it was required to be a divorce. It's more than an engagement, less than a marriage. But when he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Joseph was a righteous man considering divorce. After all, the woman to whom he was betrothed was pregnant, and he knew he wasn't the father. So God sent an angel to explain these things to Joseph. Now, if we take a look at Luke chapter um, chapter 2 actually let's go to chapter 1 Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse so let's say 26, now in the sixth month, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God in the city of, unto a city of Galilee 
named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Here we have a very specific word used to describe Mary, a virgin. He came unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this might be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? I am a virgin. How how is this supposed to happen? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. The power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. Wherefore, that holy thing which is begotten of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, the New Testament very clearly describes the situation here as being a virgin. Not normal. And not a normal situation. He was given the name for the boy Jesus uh, Joseph was. And the angel, when he's talking to Joseph, cites Isaiah 7.14. And Emmanuel means God with us, or God is with us. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 35, we just read those. He says the same thing to Elizabeth. There's no other possible reason for this to be given in the Old Testament, but as a virgin birth. So why is this doctrine so attacked? Why is it doubted? Why is it you know, looked down on, discredited? Well, it's very simple. Because it is a positive assertion of the deity of Jesus Christ. How could God become man? The, 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 the liberals or the modernists say, how could God become man? He's so high and so holy and it's such a miserable world. God created this world. He can do anything he wants. And he decided to become man through Jesus Christ so that you could go to heaven and be with him forever. And this is a positive assertion of the divinity and the deity of Jesus Christ. When you deny this doctrine, you have no other reason to accept any other part of Christianity. Think about it. If Jesus isn't God in the flesh, why should I be baptized? If Jesus isn't God in the flesh, why should I be worried about sin at all? If I can deny this doctrine, I don't have any reason to accept any other part of Christianity. Take a look at Mark chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is healing the, uh, the lame man, the uh, paralytic born of four. We read here, it says... I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. 
when he entered again into Capernaum after some days, it was noise that he was in the house. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, no, not even about the door. And he spake the word unto them. And they come bringing unto him a man sick of the palsy born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. <clears throat> and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed whereon the sick of the palsy lay. And Jesus, seeing their faith, saith unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins are forgiven. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak? He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but one, even God? And straightway Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, saith unto them, Why reason you these things among yourselves? Which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Rise, take up thy bed, and go to thy house. And he arose and straightway took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. What Jesus was doing was reasoning from the lesser to the greater. He says, You're reasoning here that that I can't forgive sins because I'm not God. Well, let me ask you a question. He says, if I say thy sins are forgiven, what does that mean? Well, if I say, rise, take up thy bed, and, and go forth, what's that mean? One, you can, cannot see. You have no idea whatever happened. But this one, if I tell him to do it, you can see whether or not it happens. Now, who can do either one of these? Who can forgive uh, sins? Sin? Only God. Who could just speak to this man and cause him to get up and walk? Well, again, only God can do that. Well, if I do that, then I have just proven that I am the Son of God, and you have every reason to believe this. He's reasoning from the lesser to the greater. After all, which is more important? Walking or being forgiven? He's reasoning from the lesser to the greater. In other words, everything else we know about Jesus demands that he be born of a virgin. Take a look. What do we know about Jesus? To deny this is ultimately to deny everything else. The arguments of the infidels are... Mark and John, don't mention it. Well, think about it. Uh, that's true. So what? If you take a look, John doesn't even mention his birth at all. Does that mean that didn't happen? John doesn't mention it. He begins at the beginning of time. He doesn't talk about Jesus' birth. Does that mean he wasn't born? My, my parents used to tell me I was found in a cabbage patch. But, you know, I don't think that's, that's what we're talking about here. The other writers ignore the subject. So what? Again, what does it matter? Paul never mentions Mary either. Does that mean that she doesn't exist? 
Does everything have to be mentioned on every page? When you're dealing with the plan of salvation, does everything happen to be mentioned that's necessary for salvation to become a Christian every time something is mentioned? They believed, and thus they were saved. That doesn't mention repentance. That doesn't mention confession. That doesn't mention baptism. That doesn't mention being faithful unto death. Does that mean they're not important? No. Well, then it doesn't matter that one of the gospel writers doesn't mention the birth of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus. It doesn't matter that somebody doesn't mention her, that Mary uh, was his mother. It's not important. What is important is that everything we know about Jesus his death, his burial, his resurrection, the miracles that he did, the teaching that he did, everything we know about that demands this kind of an entrance into the world. There is no other way. There is no other explanation. Does it make sense? Yeah. Does it make us look a little different from the rest of the world? Yeah, but so what? So we don't fit in with a lot of people's theological desires. We were made to be different. We're always going to be different. So be it. Let's enjoy that difference. If you need to answer the Lord's invitation this morning, if there's anything that we can do to help you become a better Christian, now is the time. Won't you come while we stand and sing the song that's been selected? Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.